you're the artist, I'm the canvas, it seems as though there is a divine intent for all of this. Uh, my name's Austin, I'm a pastor here at Southbrook, and I am grateful to be with you today. I have the uh, privilege of talking about one of my most favorite people, Paul, and sex. What a privilege. Sexuality. Just mentioning it in the room, a little bit more tense in here, isn't it? The amount of you who have been hurt by sex, the amount of you who have hurt with sex, it's an amalgamation of life. It's not just this, it's there, social, political. So let's just feel it in the body for a minute. We're here, we're going to get through it together. If that doesn't comfort you, imagine being me. Then <laughs> you really... Got some discomfort. Jesus said in Matthew 19, guys, this is tough stuff. He was speaking of sexuality and gender and divorce and marriage. This is tough stuff. Not everyone can accept my word on this subject. If you were with us last week, we ended with the five distinctives of the early church, the first century church in the Greco-Roman context. We won't go through them all uh, right now. But there were really six that were mentioned last week. And the sixth one, made clear in Larry Hurtado's book, uh, pointedly titled for us today, The Destroyer of the Gods, is that within the Greco-Roman context of, of Caesar divi filius nostri et Deus, divine son Caesar, Lord and God, claiming a man was Lord and God was not that obtuse. The lack of consideration of any other being as Lord and God, now you have some scandal. They did not kill Jesus because he was Mr. Rogers, because he was just so darn nice. Let's hang him, boys. When Jesus came into town, he tore apart families. Synagogues broke out in riots. Demons popped up out of nowhere. Temples fell down. Very scandalous, this man. Very scandalous to claim and to live more so as the only Lord and God. Acts 17, 1 through 9, verse 7 shows Paul, Silas, and Jason, and others that they, were, they had the reputation of being men who, in every town they went to, they acted contrary in all ways, pantadogmaton Caesar, to the decrees, the dogma of Caesar. But not just that, they claimed that Caesar was not king, but another was, namely Jesus, verse 7. Therefore, Paul would say, to the, to the Corinthians, there are many lords, there are many gods of heaven and earth. We all know this. But for us, they would sing, as the hymn goes, and you know it. But for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come, from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom you're here now, through whom you live outside of here now. I'm not interested in do's and don'ts today because basically, simply, the New Testament is not a book about an ethic resurrecting, but a man that did. It's useful, obviously, in the walk to see what Jesus thought and taught, but that is not today. Today is the philosophical foundations and the personal implications of Christism and atheism as it concerns sexuality. Therefore, it's not yet what Jesus thought and taught, but more foundational, who Jesus was and who he is as a fully sexed being. 
Not half man, half God. Fully man. Tempted in every way, just as we are, but remain perfect. With the fullness of God. So that's the claim. See Jesus as the foundation for sexuality. Now we have to start from the ground up. This is how I think through things. So this is how you're going to think through things today. Lucky you. You don't start when you build a house by building the roof. You start from the ground up. So think with me about possession. To possess something. We mostly think of this in quantitative ways. You own your house. You possess your car. You possess your body. It's one thing and another. Possession. But the more profound notion of possession is a qualitative aspect of it. To possess something, what does that really mean? To possess something evokes autonomy with it. Authority, liberty, supremacy. To possess something, to own something, is to say what that thing does and what that thing is. It's to define that something. One is lords over that something. So you possess a mind, you possess a body. You possess a mind capable of an idea, you possess a body capable of an action. No one just does actions. First we have ideas, then we have dialogue with those ideas in our conscious, and then we act very well. So do this exercise with me. Imagine yourself, you're standing in front of your mirror. All material possessions that you own, that you possess, take them away. Stand yourself in front of a mirror. You have a mind, you have a body, you have a penis, you have a vagina. It would seem, beyond all else, what do you possess is your sexuality, is your body. This is yours. I want to tell you a parable, paraphrase a parable from Frederick Nietzsche. Maybe it's one of your favorites. It's called The Madman, and we've referenced it in this series before. The madman, he, he goes running through a town and he, he, he's yelling, I seek God, I seek God. And the townspeople, they're characterized as, as Nietzsche would say, the polite atheists. They jest with him. They say, have you lost God? Can you not find God? Or better yet, uh, maybe God's playing a game with you. Maybe God is hiding. The madman then goes to those characterized as the clergy and the congregation, he says, you have killed God. God is dead, Nietzsche's famous words. The madmen would then conclude later on in the parable, if God is dead, then, conditional, another God has to take its place. We simply, his words, must become gods ourselves. Now, the idea of killing God is fantastical. I, I understand on a surface level, but when, and this is Nietzsche's intent. He's doing philosophical irony. So you have to expire something for something to die, very physical. You have God, theoretical, um, it's very metaphysical. So to pair the two, total irony. He's making fun of belief. That's fine. I think he's wrong. Practically speaking, to kill God, it's atheistic. To be atheistic is just simply just to live and act and not consider God. God is, does not exist. He's dead. Uh, the prefix of negation, theos, the Greek for God, ism is a system of belief. So what is a belief? The existentialists were very interested in this question. Dostoevsky best pronounces it in uh, The Crimes and Punishment, um, Brothers Karamazov, Death of Ivan Ilich, great summer beach reads. I'll Amazon link them in the show notes. 
If you want to know what someone believes, do you listen to what they say? Do you listen to what they sing? Do you listen to what they post? Or do you watch how they behave? Man quotes Romans 10.9. He quotes John 3.16. And he walks into Kroger and a pair of yoga pants walks in front of him. And one parses the difference between sanctification and justification. But every Sunday night, Game of Thrones is on. It's ethically sourced pornography, guys. You were supposed to laugh at that. (laughs) No, really, I mean, it's like the new Playboy. Playboy actually had interesting articles back in the day, like Bob Dylan. I would totally read that. And the joke would be, I read Playboy for the articles. No, you don't. You're a liar. I'm a 45-year-old grown man. I watch a show about talking dragons. No, you don't. You're a liar. So... Practically speaking, in a psychological sense, to be an atheist is very simple. It's very practical. It's to not consider God. And if the madman's conclusion is correct, and I believe it is, to not consider God when one acts is to kill God, and to kill God, another God must take the place. This came at a pointed time, a very significant time in Western philosophy, the, um, this was about 150, 200 years ago. Sigmund Freud was developing his three contributions to the theory of sex, civilizations, and its discontents. Shilmuth Firestone and Simone de Beauvoir were writing their feminist manifestos to attack the family system. Karl Marx was writing his uh, deconstruction of institutions and uh, production of critical theory. But most importantly, out of all of this, and we've noted this in this series, Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, And we'll come back to that towards the end. So you put all this together, Nietzsche's madman and all this obscure literature. You have David Bowie saying, the goal of life is not to find yourself, it's to create yourself. You have Ariana Grande and 16-year-old girls in the front row of Ariana Grande living out their Nietzschean philosophy. Welcome to the sexual revolution. This is your body, do with it what you want. My body, my choice, right? most underrated philosopher in the last 2,000 years, the Apostle Paul. You Corinthians say, I have the right to do anything. But I say, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say. But I, Paul, I will not be mastered by anything. You Corinthians say, food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord, they're one with the Lord. Flee. Get away from sexual immorality. Because all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but the one who sins sexually sins against themselves. Deeply psychological thought there. We could lecture about that for hours. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. Paul, known for his rhetoric and his 
this sophistication of, of argumentation, he just ends it so abruptly. You're not your own. You, um, that's it. You are not your own. That phrase there reads, you are not your own. But it, it feels more in the Greek, ukaste uaton. Uaton is a reflexive pronoun. So it feels more like you are not your own self. This whole macho thing you got going on, not yours. This whole God is a woman thing you got going on, not yours. If you subscribe to Christ, if you're all in, this doesn't belong to you. And there's nothing worse than being half in. I mean, why are you here if you're half in? Like, there's so many better things to do with your time than listen to me. Trust me. There's a saying in AA, there's nothing worse than a head full of AA and a belly full of beer. So if you're fully in, what's between your ears and what's between your legs, it's not yours. Do you find this offensive? This is very offensive. This is very scandalous. It's not offensive to say sex outside of the arena of marriage um, is a sin. No one believes in sin anymore. It's, it's, it's not offensive to say that marriage is only for a man or a woman. No one believes that anyway. I mean, like, that's not offensive. What's offensive is you're going right at the source, finding the pressure point and pushing on it. You're not your own. This isn't your body if you're of Christ. This is very offensive. Matthew eleven six, A little forgotten parable. It's forgotten because no one wants to remember it. I did. Blessed is he who doesn't take offense of me. The other parables, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit, blessed are the hunger and thirst. You know, the other parables, or the other beatitudes, they're written to the plural. This one's written to the singular. So you read it, it's actually like he's pointing at you. He's like pointing at someone. Blessed are you who do not take offense in me. Another way of saying that is, blessed are you who takes offense of me, but still follows me. The Greek verb for offense is skandalizu. What does that sound like? It's very scandalous, this man. Blessed are you who take offense of me, but you still follow me. So, there's good news and bad news about this. The bad news is we all have conditions, right? Three men hung on a cross. The one on the left said, if you're the son of God, here's my condition. You'll give me what I want. The other man said, truly, you're the son of God. He said to that man, friend, you'll be with me in paradise. The good news of this offense the madman, he says, if we do become our own gods, who will comfort us? The murderers? Injustice? The amount of hurt that's in this room from sexuality. I can't, you can feel it, literally. I mean, it's, it's heavy. Just drive being up here. If you're your own self, that's your task, friend. You better find a damn good therapist. I didn't mean to say that, I'm sorry. Um, the good news, though, if you're of Christ, the most scandalous thing about him, that's my body. I'll take care of it. I got you. I'll heal that. 
Okay, so there are three local surgeries of this happening in Scripture. Mark 10, the rich young ruler. He cancels all the right people. He follows all the right virtues. He signals all the right things. He is righteous by the law and blameless. And he has his little kingdom on the side. His own little kingdom with his own little garage and his own little things and you know, stuff. Hey, Jesus, how do I, how do I have what, this kind of peace that you have? That's mine. That's not yours. That's mine. It belongs to me. I, you give it up. Give it to the poor. You can't do that. Brother, go in peace. That's okay. You can make that choice. I don't override kingdoms. That's yours. Chapter 11 of Matthew begins with taking offense. It ends with everyone's favorite verse. Come to me, all you who are weary. I will give you rest. Two other things to note. Luke 7, Luke 8, both tell stories of, of women who have been spent their whole life because of the injustice of their circumstances, spent their whole life on, the knee, on their knees in front of men abusing them for different reasons. I imagine a lot of Jesus' conversations ended, there's always that like white part of the Gospels where you, it's not there but you see it. I think a lot of his conversations, are you tired? Are you tired living in a culture where sex is everything and sex is nothing? Figure that out if you're 17. So he, so he gets down on his knees with these women and he says, daughter, step into peace because you got on your knees one more time but you, got, you found the right one this time. Step into peace. There are two groups I'm talking to today. The first group, you hear this and you're convinced. This is the journey you've been on that I am not my own God, this is not my own body, everything I have is for him. I die daily as Paul would say. It's all for him. You agree. Great, I hope this is an encouragement for you. Or perhaps you didn't fully understand this, but now you do, great. You're excused. There's another group I'm talking to today, and this is the preacher's job, is to find the person that's like most offended by it and just like push on this, they're a subject. You're unconvinced. You're, you're, you don't disagree, you're here. Because Jesus, he's a nice rabbi. He's a nice teacher. He has a good ethic. He makes me look different than, you know, my friends. And, you know, in today's culture, love and everything and all that stuff, it works. Like, Jesus is a nice teacher. But, I mean, all the real serious stuff that, like, involves me being uncomfortable, you know, that's, that's, that's just, like, uh, outdated. We've awoken from that. Uh, we've progressed past that. This is, this is the target I'm, I'm speaking to. Those of you who public speak, you know you need to have a target. This is my target. I think young people aren't leaving the church because they don't believe. Belief is very practical. We've shown that in this series. People are leaving, young people, especially 20s to 30s, they're leaving the church because there's not a demand of them. Nothing's demanded. There's no, there's no cost. What's the wager? So for the second group, what is the wager? What's the cost? We'll do that. There's two ways. Well, first, many of you know, we'll set the scene. Many of you know millennials, or you have a millennial, you're a parent of a millennial, or you are a millennial yourself, and I can speak to millennials because I am one. I'm 31. Ask a millennial, hey, that old friend from high school, John, where is he at these days? What's he doing? And the millennial will say a little brief biography, half-hearted, you know, because they don't want to talk to you. Well, he's working here. He lives over there. He's seeing her. And then they'll end it, the biography, with, He's doing his own thing. <laughs> like, whatever that means. 
But it's like the American dream for the millennial. Do your own thing. Don't live in the same city your parents live in. Don't do what your dad does. I mean, like, don't, you know, by all costs, do your own thing. I don't know what it means. There's two ways to write a story. The first conventional way is you sit down with a pad and paper, a pad of paper and a pen, and you start tracing out some characters. You have a protagonist and you have an antagonist. And you find out what are they like, what do they want, and what do they need. When you develop what they want and need, what they want and need, and you see that and you clearly define it, you have a structure around it, then you can find a point of conflict. When you find a point of conflict, then you can draw a conclusion, you can draw a purpose to which the narrative arc is working towards. That's one way to write a story, conventional. I'm not a writer. Ask any writer. There's probably someone in this room. Ask them. That's 101 writing. You've got to plan it out. The second way to write a story, you go to some coffee shop in a gentrified area, has some aesthetic of Scandinavia inside, no colors. You have a, you see where I'm going with this, matcha latte, you have your MacBook. You think of everything you've gone through in your past. You think of everything you want to do in your future, you want to do in your future. And then, based on what you feel from that, you just start writing. Go, write. Now, write. It's boring. Young people, that's boring. It's, that's, not, that's not even a story, that's journaling. And no one cares about your journals. You won't even care about your journals 20 years from now. It's not compelling. I, I, I really wish I had more of that preacherly punch to really grab you today. I really do. But the words are simply, you are not your own. Either decide to find yourself in a cosmic drama, in a narrative pre-established to your being by the archaikos, the author of life, Find yourself in that narrative of these protagonists and antagonists. Find yourself at the point of conflict that is the cross where you either come with conditions or you come as truly you are this man. Do you know why? Because you conclude. You find a point of conclusion. You find a purpose. That's the demand that young people need. A purpose. I said uh, about uh, Darwin and Origin of Species, Christianity has made much a muck about and a fuss about uh, what Darwin did to the beginning of creation and taking away the, you know, and it was there, that whole thing. I don't want to get into that. The real striking blow that Darwin threw at Christianity is he took away the telos, the fulfillment, the completion to which the human experience was working towards. He took it away. Because you're just going to evolve, as we say, from good as you, you by way of the zoo, until someday a rock's going to hit this planet and it's all nothing. So if there is no eternal potential, here's the pleasurable present. Just don't hurt anyone. Right? But you are you. There's no great prototokon, the prototype, the firstborn among creation. 
This is what Darwin did. Darwin laid a framework for Nietzsche and Freud's self-possessing, self-authenticating, self-authoring individual. Aldous Huxley, uh, many of you know, right? He wrote a book uh, called A Brave New World. And in A Brave New World, it is this dystopian future of mostly conformity. Happiness is the, is the sovereign good. Someone submits a publication in this story that is called A, a New Theory of Biology. The controller, the antagonist in The Brave New World, he offers a critique on this new theory of biology. The antagonist says, once you begin admitting explanations in terms of purpose, you don't know what the result might be. It's the sort of idea that might too easily decondition the more unsettled minds among the higher caste, those who want a greater narrative. It would make them lose their faith that happiness is the sovereign good. They might take to believing instead. That the goal is somewhere beyond, somewhere outside the present human sphere, that the purpose of life was not in the maintenance of well-being, but some intensification, refining of consciousness, some enlargement of knowledge. Christ didn't come to just die. Okay. He came to show you how to live life as a fully sexed being. Paul, later on in his life, after his letter to 1 Corinthians, would, would write Romans 8. And Romans 8 is it's essentially this, in, in kind of some of my words, some of Paul's words. Straight, queer, divorced, single, married, 17, 70, ascetic monk. You're a good idea. God thinks you're a good idea. He adopted you. There's no shame, no condemnation. Therefore, your purpose? To conform to the image of the prototype. Conform to the image of the prototype. He would say again to the Corinthians in his next letter, unveil your face. Transform from the glory God sees you into the glory to be revealed. This is your purpose. This is the narrative to find yourself in. This is it. I wish it was more compelling than this. It's, 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 all, it's all I got. It's all the text begs to get. Don't write a boring story. Write a compelling story. I have the best story. All the other stories are about other stuff. This story, death dies. What's a better story than that? We're going to hear about it next weekend about death. Death dies. That's the best story to find yourself in. Paul would later say to Timothy, his beloved, it's commonly agreed all throughout the Mediterranean, this great mystery of godliness that was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, observed by angels, preached among the nations, believed on, acted upon in the world, and it was taken up into glory. Young people, do your laundry. Grow up. Do what Jesus tells you to do. Sexuality, your body, are a means to holiness. 
There's reward in that because you'll find your purpose in that. That's where your story concludes. That's what you were made for. Do as Jesus tells you to do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that for Paul, the gospel was not just an account. It was a command. It was an imperative. I pray that blessing that seems to be within Paul's, behind Paul and everything he said and did. I pray that, that blessing over everyone today, that there would be at least someone here today that I, I see the gospel's not just a thing, it's a command. By your wounds we are healed. We need a Savior. We thank you for that grace. Amen.